Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2, verse 21. Luke chapter 2, verse 21. When it comes to Christmas, most of our focus is on the days leading up to Christmas. And Christmas Day itself, and that's understandable. All of us have certainly heard a lot about the night before Christmas. But this morning, I'm going to talk about the days after Christmas. Because that's where we are, literally, the days after Christmas. And in this passage, that's where we are this morning. This passage recording for us... The days after Christmas. So, what are the days after Christmas like for you? Where is your focus in these days after Christmas? Is it about rest? Any of you worn out this morning? I've only driven 24,000 miles in the last week. Forget going around the world in 90 days. I've done it in Christmas week. Is it about recuperation for you? Uh, Survival? Is there a big letdown after Christmas has come and gone? Or is it about wrapping up the year and getting started on a new year? With all of its parties and all of its resolutions that you'll never keep. And the bowl games that come with it. On new opportunities. Well, in this passage, I'm going to show you from the text what the days after Christmas should be like for us. Where... Our focus should be in these days after Christmas. And we're going to see this in four activities in the days after Christmas or four activities in the days following the first Christmas. So the first activity that I want us to see is the obedience of Joseph and Mary. The obedience of Joseph and Mary. Look at verse 21. When the eight days were completed for his circumcision, and what this is talking about is the Jewish custom going all the way back to Abraham, God giving it to him, of circumcising their male sons on the eighth day after their birth. God had given this to Abraham as a sign of the covenant between him and the people that would come from Abraham. And so when it speaks here of that, it's speaking of Jesus belonging to faithful Jewish parents, having reached this eighth day and being circumcised. Also, a part of that eighth day circumcision ceremony was the naming 
the official naming of the child. And it says then in verse 21 that he, this baby that's been born, was named Jesus. And we know that the name Jesus means the Lord saves. Jehovah is salvation. It goes on to say in verse 21 that he was named this because it was the name given by the angel before he was conceived. In Matthew chapter 1, an angel appeared to Joseph and told him about the pregnancy of Mary and that she would have a son and that he was to take her to be his wife and take this child to be his own and that on the day that he was to be named, his name wasn't to be Joseph, but instead his name was to be Jesus. For in this child, the Lord would save his people from their sins. Verse 22 says, And when the days of their purification according to the law of Moses were finished. Now, the purification here speaks of something that was going on with the mother with Mary who had recently given birth. And this fast forwards us out not eight days past the birth of Jesus, but 40 days past the birth of Jesus. According to the Old Testament law, a woman was unclean for 40 days after the birth of a son. It was twice that long after the birth of a daughter. And please don't ask me to go into all of that this morning. Ladies, don't be offended. Uh, we, we're, there is no male or female in Christ Jesus, all equally saved, all equally inheritors of the salvation of our great God. But the purification here refers to now 40 days out. She's gone through the ceremony of purification. And then it says they brought him up to Jerusalem. They were in Bethlehem, so it's quite an ordeal to get there. Six miles isn't a big deal for us, but six miles was quite a deal in those days. They brought him up to Jerusalem to present him or to make an offering of him to the Lord. And this too was based on the Word of God or the law of God. It says in verse 23, just as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male will be dedicated to the Lord. This went back to the Passover when God had spared all of the firstborn sons of Israel in Egypt. And He had not spared all of the firstborn sons of the Egyptians in that final plague that He used to deliver Israel from their slavery in Egypt. But in return, for God having spared Israel's firstborn sons, he made it a law that after that, they would have to offer back unto Him, dedicate to Him all of their firstborn sons. And in the beginning, these firstborn sons were literally given to the service of the Lord. They became the priestly class. But then in time, God took unto Himself a whole tribe, the tribe of Levi, to become that priestly class. And then after that, rather than giving them to the official service of the Lord, they were enabled by God to offer a sacrifice in the place of their firstborn son. And it would have reminded them 
that had it not been for the great grace and mercy of God, their sons would have been taken from them too. Verse 24 tells us what Mary and Joseph, the parents of Jesus, offered as a sacrifice in His place. Verse 24, And to offer a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, this gives us some insight into the family life of Jesus. Because while here it quotes the portion of the law from the Old Testament that the sacrifice was a pair of doves or a couple of pigeons, that wasn't all that was said in the Old Testament. For those who could afford it, their offering was to be a lamb or a calf. But for those who could not afford it, the offering of a couple of doves or a couple of pigeons was acceptable. So what does this tell us about the life of Jesus, the parents of Jesus? Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the eternal Word of God, the one through whom everything has been made, the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, was born into poverty. A poor family. God always going out of His way, even in the giving of His Son, to identify with the people that society wants the least to do with. What we see here, the obedience of Joseph and Mary in the naming of Jesus. They did not name Him a family name. Like the case with John the Baptist, Zechariah and Elizabeth, his parents. They did not name John a family name. And remember, those that were gathered on that day were freaked out by it. That's not his father's name. That's not a family name. And Zechariah wrote it on a board and said, I don't care what it is, that's going to be his name because I'm tired of being quiet. And so they named him John. And in a similar way, these parents of Jesus going against custom, going against tradition, going against their family even, they name their son the name that's been given to them by God in obedience to God. We also see the obedience of Joseph and Mary in the dedication of Jesus. I could add in the purification of Mary, and then from that, in the dedication of Jesus. The presentation of an offering or a sacrifice in the place of Jesus. And in obedience to God. Now think about that for a moment. The one who would be the sacrifice. The one that all the sacrifices pointed to, even these couple of doves or a couple of pigeons had a sacrifice made on His behalf. It really speaks, as the rest of this passage does, to the humanity of Jesus. The days after Christmas for us should be about obedience. 
in the days after Christmas, our focus should be on obedience. Look at the example of Joseph and Mary. I've just pointed to it here. But beyond that, look at their examples of obedience in the days leading up to what we know as the Christmas story. I alluded just a moment ago to Joseph being visited by an angel of God and being told by God, now, the lady you're engaged to is pregnant or about to be pregnant. And I know you're not the father. And he would know that he wasn't the father. But I want you to take her to be your wife. And to take this child to be your own child. And raise him as your own. And Joseph did. He did not know Mary until after this child was born. Think about the obedience of Mary. Mary's just a young, teenage, Jewish girl. I'm sure living a committed Jewish life to that point in time in her life. She is visited by an angel of God. And the message from the angel is God has chosen you to give birth to the Messiah. And, and immediately we want to say, wow, what an honor it was. But we often don't think of the scorn that would have come along with that. I mean, try explaining to your neighborhood that I'm pregnant, but I really haven't done anything wrong. God has made me pregnant to give birth to His Son. How's that going to go when you go home and tell mom and dad that? And her response to it all is a response of obedience. Lord, I'm your servant. You can do with me whatever you want to do. Like Joseph and Mary, we should do what God tells us to do. We should do or you should do what God tells you to do. And I should do the same. And if you're wondering how He tells us what to do, He doesn't tell us what to do by visiting us with an angel anymore. That's how Mormonism got started. That's how Islam got started. He used to do it like that, but in these days He has spoken to us, Hebrews chapter 1 says, in His Son who is the Word. And He's spoken to us in this book that we call the Bible, the very Word of God. So we're to do what God tells us to do in His Word. To be more specific, we're to do what God tells us to do in His law. So we're not to have any gods before God. There are to be no rivals to the preeminence of God in our life. We're not to make idols for ourselves, things that are physical representations of God. We're not to take the name of the Lord in vain. We're not to use God's name like we use other names or other words. We're to honor our father and mother all the days of our life. We're not to lie. We're not to commit adultery. We're not to steal. We're not to murder. We're not to covet. Jesus 
summarized even those commands for us when He said that we are to love God with all of our heart and all of our mind and all of our soul and all of our strength, meaning we're just supposed to love God with everything that we've got. Physically and mentally and spiritually, we're to love God with all that we are. And we're to love others. We love others by serving them, by laying down our lives for them, by sacrificing for them. And in turn, the real way that we love God is by loving people, the Scripture says. God's Word commands us all to repent and to believe on Jesus. That's how we're to obey To agree with what the Scripture says about every one of us, that we're sinners and we are rebels against God in Adam and in our own actions. And that we are worthy of the judgment of God. That's all we're worthy of. We deserve hell and condemnation and the wrath of God being poured out against us. But Scripture commands us to repent. God has commanded all men everywhere to repent, to turn from that sin to Christ, to trust on Him. Remember earlier in the Gospel of John that we've been studying for this last year, the people asked Jesus, tell us what the works of God are that we're to do. And Jesus said, here's the work of God. Believe in the one that He has sent. And we're to keep repenting and believing. Because we keep sinning. And we remain in need of a Savior. Obey what God tells you to do through His Spirit. When we read the Word of God, when we study the Word of God, when we hear the Word of God talked about, preached, God's Spirit is at work. And He is applying the living Word of God to our heart and to our lives and He compels us to do something with it. To respond to it in some way. That's what I mean by doing what God tells you to do in His Spirit, through His Spirit. We're to obey what God tells us to do through authority figures. God has placed authority figures in each of our lives. For those of us that are church members... An authority figure in our life is the church itself. We are under the authority of the church. We are to be submissive to the body of Christ as a whole and to Christ as He governs our lives through His church. For children, God has given every one of you parents that are authority figures. And if you want to obey God, then obey your parents. For those of us that work, we have employers or bosses. We're to do what they say, as unto the Lord, as long as it doesn't contradict what the Lord tells us to do. The government is an authority figure for us in the same sort of way. And so I ask this morning, are you obeying God? Like Joseph and Mary. Is your life characterized by obedience to God, like Joseph and Mary? Now listen, here's the word of warning. 
if your life is not characterized by obedience, then it doesn't matter how often you proclaim yourself to be a Christian or a follower of Christ, biblically, you have no reason to be assured that that's the case. Those that belong to Him will be like Him. Not perfectly, but repentantly and in faith and characteristically. The first activity for us in the days after Christmas should be obedience. The second activity I want you to see is the proclamation of Simeon. Look at verse 25. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This is the only time he's mentioned in all of Scripture. This man was righteous and devout. You'll see a similar description of of Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. In the Old Testament, we saw similar descriptions for Noah. For Job, he was a righteous man. That is, he lived rightly. He was devout. He was serious. He was sincere. This doesn't mean that he was a perfect man. The only perfection that any of us have, that anyone of any age has ever had, is the imputed perfection of Jesus. But those who have that can live a life that can be characterized as righteous and devout. In addition to this, it says about Simeon, he was looking forward to Israel's consolation. That means he was looking forward to the Messiah coming. The Anointed One, the Christ, the Savior. And the Savior in a number of Old Testament passages was spoken of as being the consolation of Israel. He was the one in whom all their hopes resided. He would console them, comfort them, rescue them, be a deliverer for them. Simeon was one of the faithful remnant of Israel that was looking forward to the coming of the Savior. And it also says about Simeon here, the Holy Spirit was on him. Which, going back to what we studied a couple of weeks ago in the Gospel of John, is fairly significant. Because we know from that passage that the Holy Spirit had not come because Jesus had not been glorified yet. Meaning that He wasn't living in every person's life, every believer's life before this. But He did live in some of them for periods of time. And Simeon was one of these select few who before the pouring out of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost knew what it was like to be indwelt by the very Spirit of God. Indwelt by the power of God. Verse 26 says, It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit That he would not see death before he saw the Lord's Messiah. In other words, the Holy Spirit living in Simeon had revealed to him, you're not going to die until the Messiah comes. You're going to live to see it. 
Verse 27 says, guided by the Spirit, He entered the temple complex. And I want to show you just how guided He was. At the very moment He was guided by the Spirit into the temple complex, guess who else was being led into the temple complex? Not a coincidence. It says in verse 27, when the parents brought in the child Jesus, to perform for Him what was customary under the law, this dedication that we spoke of earlier. Simeon grabs up this child. And I'm assuming that he doesn't do it in a manner that's going to scare Mary. Maybe he says, hey, this is a special child you've got. And God has revealed to me that I'm going to live to see the Messiah. And I've been led here at just this moment so that I could see the Messiah. And the very one who has made the arms of Simeon is taken up into the arms of Simeon. And this old man is embracing the very one who will save him and save all of the people of God. And it makes me wonder this morning, have you embraced the Messiah? Have you taken Jesus into your own arms and into your own chest? The center of your very life. Simeon does. He takes Him up in his arms and he begins to praise God and he says, Now, Master, you can dismiss your slave in peace just as you promised. In other words, Lord, I'm ready to go. I've seen what I've been living to see and I'm ready. I'll tell you what, folks, embracing Jesus will make you ready for anything, even death. It it, it burdens my heart when I hear believers speak not just of a, a fear of death and the unknown like all of us would have, but of almost being tormented by the thought of death. We don't have to be in that torment. It's natural for us to to have fears and doubts and worries, but when it's to the point that it paralyzes us, we're missing something. i tell you what you need to do. You either need to take Jesus up in your arms or you need to pull Him a little closer to yourself. And we may not be ready to go right now. You know, if He's getting up a load to go, we may not be the first ones raising our hands to go, but we don't have to live in fear of death. Verse 30 says, For my eyes have seen your salvation. You have prepared it in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and a glory to your people, Israel. His father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. I mean, this is more than, hey, you got a cute baby there. Right? It's more than, you know, rubbing his head and giving him a big wet kiss. This, this is significant. You've got a special child there. They'd already been alerted to this, but they didn't understand it completely as evidenced by what follows this in the rest of the life of Jesus. But now Simeon, God through Simeon, is filling in the blanks for them and He, he blesses them. And He tells His mother Mary, This child is destined to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel. Jesus is the crossroads that none of us can bypass. Jesus is the stone 
in the road of life that no one can, can get around without doing something with Him. We either fall on Christ the stone and, and let Him crush us, or He in turn, if we don't, will crush us to pieces. We either believe on Christ and are raised with Him, or through our rejection of Christ, we will fall and great will be that person's fall. He goes on to say He's destined to be a sign that will be opposed. Last week I told you that Jesus was born to be a sign from John or Isaiah 7.14. But here in this language, Simeon says He'll be a sign that will be opposed. The very people to whom He had come would reject Him severely. That's why in verse 35, Simeon says a sword will pierce your own soul. No doubt a reference to the crucifixion of Jesus that Mary, the mother of Jesus, would witness so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. And I'll tell you, Jesus has a way of doing that beyond anyone or anything else. If you really want to know the condition of your heart or the condition of another person's heart, then just look at the way they respond to Jesus. Do they love Jesus? Do they love hearing about Jesus? Do they love spending time with Jesus and the people of Jesus? Do they love spending time with Jesus in His Word? Do they love to hear Jesus being preached from His Word? That's what reveals the condition of a heart. It's this. If we respond to Christ in repentance and faith and love... It's wonderful. But for all of those who do not, their hearts are revealed to be still hard, still lost, still bound in sin. The proclamation of Simeon was about salvation in Jesus. Not just for the Jews, right? For all peoples. We saw that last week. Jesus was born to be a Savior, a blessing to all nations. Genesis chapter 12, Genesis 26, repeated numerous times elsewhere in the Scripture. The proclamation of Simeon was about the suffering and the sacrifice of Jesus and how salvation through Jesus would be accomplished through the suffering and the sacrifice of Jesus. So, the days after Christmas for us should be about proclamation. The days after Christmas... In these days after Christmas, our focus should be on proclamation. Look at the example of Simeon. That's what he's doing here. In a moment, we'll see Anna. At that moment, look at her example of proclamation. Look at the example of the angels earlier in the Christmas story proclaiming. We have good news for all people today. In the city of David, a Savior has been born. Look at the proclamation of the shepherds. They heard the message of the shepherds. They went to view this newborn king and they left there talking among themselves and with others proclaiming the news of the birth of the Messiah. Like Simeon, proclaim salvation in Jesus. 
through the suffering and the sacrifice of Jesus, be a proclaimer of the good news. This, this news that in spite of the fact that we are sinful and separated from God, that God has provided in His Son, Jesus, the way for us to be forgiven of our sins and to receive eternal life and to be made right with Him if we will repent and believe on Christ. Let us be the people who are proclaiming the message of Acts 4.12 that there is salvation in no other name but this name of Jesus. That's a message that needs to be heard loudly and clearly in our world. It's a message that needs to be proclaimed loudly and clearly by the church of Christ. Because there are those even within the church of Christ who aren't very clear when it comes to proclaiming this. Among the leading proclaimers of Christ, and I use that loosely, are those who can't say definitively that Jesus is the only way to be saved. And you listen to me. If you hear one who is ambiguous on this, he does not speak for God. Let us be the ones proclaiming the words of Christ Himself in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. And as we're doing that, we can equally proclaim... The words of Isaiah 53, 5. By His stripes, by His wounds, we are healed. We are healed of our sickness, primarily sin, that leads to the other forms that we can more clearly see. Look for opportunities to proclaim Jesus. To proclaim the Word of Christ. Listen, Christian. Learn how to share Jesus better. If, if you're not as, as good at it as you would like to be or as you should be, invest some time in it. We invest time in getting better at a lot of other things that are far less significant. Learn how to do it better. Lead conversations that you're involved in to the subject of Jesus. You can do that. Within most every conversation we have, there is a door that is opened by the other person that gives us a, a big alleyway into talking about Christ. You don't have to shove it down their face. Usually we're led right into it. We just don't walk through the door. So I ask you this morning, are you proclaiming Jesus like Simeon? Do you see this as your mission? Do we see this as our mission as a church to the glory of God proclaiming Christ? We should because it is. The second activity for us then in the days after Christmas should be proclamation. The third activity I want you to see is the thanksgiving or if you will, the praise of Anna. Look at verse 36. There was also a prophetess, Anna, 
And prophetess there could mean a number of things. Uh, Deborah was a prophetess in the Old Testament. Huldah was. Miriam, the sister of Moses, prophesied. It means she spoke on behalf of God. So it could mean that here. That this is a woman who spoke on behalf of God. Sometimes in the Old Testament, prophetess is used to refer to the wife of a prophet. That was the case with the wife of Isaiah. So whatever way, Anna is a prophetess. She's a daughter of Daniel of the tribe of Asher. She was well along in years. And I pray, well, before I say that, let me say this. There are no finer people in this church than our people who are well along in years. That should get an amen, by the way. Not from them. For those of us that are not well along in years, if we aren't being what we should be, it's not because we don't have examples of it from our elderly people in our congregation. There are... No group of people in this church who are more committed to Christ and more committed to this church than our elderly folks. And I fear the day when they're all gone. God help us. We'll have to shut down Sunday night church. And if we ever stop feeding folks on Wednesday night, we'll have to shut that down too. I'm just talking real honestly. And I'm talking at my age group and, and, and the age groups around me. Now that I've bragged on our older folks, and I, y'all know I love you. I love you. You're the best we've got. And that's not a, a, a detriment to anybody else. That's just a compliment to you. But let this do be an example to us at whatever age we are to realize uh, there's no age where we get too old to serve God. No age that's too young where we can't serve God. Simeon and Anna are both examples of this. There was also a prophetess, Anna, a daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was well along in years, having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and was a widow for 84 years. Now that means either that she had been a widow for the last 84 years or that she was now 84 years old and and a widow after being widowed after being married for seven years. She did not leave the temple complex serving God night and day. And it tells us the, the way that she served Him with fasting and prayers. Do you think about serving God in that way ever with prayer? Some of you that we don't ever see doing anything. Maybe that's your thing. Let me encourage you. It's a good thing. You keep it up. We don't need to see you up here. Uh, What you do is far more important than those of us who get up here. You just keep praying. You you be the furnace room of the church. And there's room for more of you to get in there. Just get in the powerhouse and start praying. But how often do we think about serving God through fasting? She did it. We can serve God and others through fasting. Great power there. Verse 38, it says at that very moment, referring to the moment that Simeon's taken up the Christ in his arms and starts proclaiming, she came up and she began to thank God and to speak about Him to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Israel. Now, look at what takes place here. Simeon begins to 
proclaim Christ. And it leads Anna to give thanksgiving and praise toward Christ and in turn also to her proclaiming Christ as well. The days after Christmas for us should be about thanksgiving, praise. In the days after Christmas, our focus should be on thanksgiving and praise. Look at the example of Anna here. Simeon earlier. Zechariah when he found out that they would be having a son who would be John the Baptist. Mary, when she found out she would be having the Messiah. Elizabeth, when she went to see her cousin Mary and was so overjoyed that she was speaking to the mother of her Savior. Look at the example of John the Baptist before he's ever born. I mean, he's jumping up and down and cheering for Jesus in the womb when he hears his mother speak. Look at the example of the angels and the shepherds and the wise men all bursting forth with worship, praise, thanksgiving. So like Anna, thank God and praise God for what He's done in Christ. For redemption. I may not be worth much, but Jesus bought me with His own life. And His own blood. A great price. And that's your story if you're in Christ. Praise Him for that redemption. Praise God. Thank Him for His faithfulness. God promised a Savior and He sent one. Praise Him and thank Him for salvation and deliverance and rescue. For His plan that included this. For His greatness in accomplishing this. For His favor, His grace, His mercy in Christ. For His power, for His goodness. For His promises that are yet to be fulfilled, but we know will be. So I ask, are you thanking and praising God like Anna? Is your life characterized by thanksgiving and praise, even in your hardships? These folks that are doing all the thanksgiving and praising here, their lives weren't easy. And they were doing it anyway. And some of you are wonderful testimonies of that. And I applaud you. And I encourage you. You're an example to the rest of us. We should do this because God is worthy. The third activity for us in the days after Christmas should be thanksgiving and praise. Now, the fourth activity I want you to see is the growth of Jesus. And I'll do this quickly. It's short. The growth of Jesus. Look at verse 39. When they had completed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. Now, Luke here skips over some stuff that Matthew records. Between what we've read about here in Luke, we know that uh, they went down to Egypt for a while, to fulfill the Scripture out of Egypt, I've called my son. We also know that the wise men came to visit Jesus at some point in the first couple of years of the life of Jesus. Luke, though, jumps right to this. Verse 40. The boy, Jesus, grew up, became strong, filled with wisdom, and God's grace was on him. We see the growth of Jesus there physically. 
You do know that Jesus wasn't born a fully grown man, don't you? We see the growth of Jesus mentally. It says He grew in wisdom. We see the growth of Jesus socially, at least implied there. It's stated explicitly elsewhere that He grew in favor with men. We see the growth of Jesus spiritually there. And that may be surprising for us. It says that Jesus grew in the grace of God, in favor with God. God's grace was on Him. He was growing spiritually. You say, well, how can God grow spiritually if He's already perfect in all of His ways? Well, this is speaking to the humanity of Jesus. Some of us have an idea that if Jesus... Or when Jesus was a baby, He never cried. Well, He did. I, I, I know somebody had to take a baby out this morning. Praise God for babies that cry. I bet Jesus cried in the synagogue when Mary and Joseph took Him. You know, He wasn't a baby sitting up still for the whole two hour long service and, you know, following along, underlining stuff and copying the outline. He had to have his diaper changed just like any other baby has to have their diaper changed. Some of us have an idea of Jesus that when he enrolled in school and they said, today we're going to learn the ABCs, Jesus said, well, I already know that. Let me show you how I can write and print. I can even write in cursive. You never had to teach me. No, he had to learn those things. Some of us have the idea that when Jesus was in Little League, that every time he came up to bat, they were going four pitches walking because he hits a home run every time. No, Jesus was a, a human just like us. He grew in wisdom. He even grew spiritually. The Scripture elsewhere says about Him, He learned obedience. How does God learn to obey? Because God was also a man. The days after Christmas for us should be about growth then. Maturity. Maturing. In the days after Christmas, our focus should be on growth. Just look at the example of Jesus. And it causes me to ask you this question. If Jesus had to grow and mature, how much more is that the case for us? We're merely human. We aren't God-men. Like Jesus, seek growth. Now... For most of us, seeking physical growth isn't an issue. Or or maybe for most of us, it is the issue. But we don't have to work at it. But we should seek mental growth. You don't know everything. Neither do I. The more we learn, the more we figure out we don't know. Seek social growth. Growing in favor with people. Seek certainly spiritual growth which the Bible refers to as sanctification. And I know if we become any more like the Lord, it's the Lord working in us. But I also know that the Bible teaches every Christian to seek their own sanctification. To do the things that will make them more like Christ. Learn obedience. And I've got some rough news. You know the way we learn obedience? The same way Jesus did through suffering. Through discipline. And as you're seeking growth, I want you to know, child of God, that God is committed to your growth more than you are. He's committed to your becoming like Christ. Romans 8.29 says, For those He foreknew, He predestined 
to be conformed to the image of His Son. We are going to be made like Jesus. Romans 8.30 says, For those He justified, He also glorified. Everyone that's saved will be glorified, made like Christ. Philippians 1.6 says, He who began the good work in us will be faithful to complete it. And so I ask you, are you growing like Jesus? It's abnormal if you're not. Are you seeking growth? Maybe I need to ask you, have you been born spiritually? Has Christ been born in you? We celebrate the birth of Christ. Well, the first birth of Christ points us to His being reborn in people. Has Christ been born in you? Are you alive? Are you really alive? Or just a dead man walking? The fourth activity for us in the days after Christmas should be growth. So what are these days after Christmas going to be like for you? Where's your focus going to be in these days after Christmas? We've seen and talked about four activities that provide us with the right answers to these questions. Obedience, proclamation, thanksgiving or praise, and growth. Will these be your answers? Will these be your activities in the days after Christmas? Let's pray that this would be the case. Look, not just in the days after Christmas, but in all our days. And more than just praying, as far as it's in our power, let's make this the case. We don't have to pray about whether God wants us to obey. Or whether God wants us to proclaim, or to thank, or to praise. Or whether God wants us to grow. Let's do it. And let's get started right now in these days after Christmas. Would you stand with me and bow your heads and close your eyes?